Well, good morning again. Welcome to Bible Center. My name is Matt. I'm the senior pastor here. It is great worshiping the Lord with you. If you missed the choir opener, you're going to want to stay for the next service. Uh, you don't have to stay for the sermon. I give you a pass. Nobody wants to listen to two sermons in one day. Uh, but you want to stay for the choir opener. Beautiful, beautiful. Love the music. Love what God is doing uh, in our lives. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story, uh, the full story of the treehouse we're building behind our house. I mentioned it a few months ago in a sermon, but I'll tell you the full story. When we were moving back to Charleston two years ago, it was almost two years ago this month or next month, uh, that we received the news that you had called me back as your senior pastor. We'd lived in Louisville about five years, and our children had grown uh, really close to a lot of friends there. They loved their schools. They loved our neighborhood. And so it was hard, especially for children, to have to move back. And so I had learned a trick from one of my mentors to ask the kids, how can we make this transition easier for you? Some people call it bribing. I like to call it peaceful negotiation. So how can we make this transition easier for you? When we asked our nine-year-old, she had the really three things she was hoping for. Uh, because we'd always lived, or the last five years, we'd lived in a rented uh, house, an apartment in Louisville that didn't allow pets. She wanted a dog. And so we were able to check that off the list. Sure, you can get a dog, and now we have a dog. Uh, the one, other thing she wanted was a trampoline, so we were able to get a trampoline. But the third thing she wanted was a treehouse. Uh, now that we had trees that belonged to us, Daddy, can you, can you build a treehouse? So, of course, how hard could it be? I'll build a treehouse. I went online and I found the drawings, I found the schematic, and, and decided to go to Home Depot to build a treehouse. This is a picture of the treehouse that I plan to build. <laughs> I think the slides got confused. That's actually not it. This more like looks like the drawings that I took to Home Depot right here. Piled all the wood, uh, all the, the metal, the bolts, even picked up a couple of saws. I had never owned a sawzall before. How many of you men own a, or women own a sawzall, right? Like you just, if you got testosterone coursing through your veins, you've got to have a sawzall. I have no idea how to use it, but man, I love uh, to turn it on. And so how, how hard could it be, right, to build a treehouse? Even though I'm not a carpenter, I studied Jesus in seminary, and he was a carpenter, so certainly I could translate that into building one behind the house. After the first full day of, on Labor Day, I thought, I told uh, Riley that I could get it probably under roof at least by the end of the day, but by the end of the first day, I had two boards mounted to the tree. That was it. I didn't realize how long it would take to put those big lug bolts into the tree, especially without a drill. Having to do it by hand uh, took quite a while. And after 145 days, I'm not counting, but if I was, it would be 145 days. This is what is left behind my house. <laughs> I counted it this morning before I left. There's 12 boards mounted to that tree. I've learned some things about construction projects. One, it always costs more than you think. It costs a lot to build a treehouse. But I've also learned that it costs more to start a job and leave the job half finished. It, it costs a lot more. My neighbors, it's, it's costing me my pride and my reputation. We actually had a neighbor, I have the best neighbors in the world, but I had one of our neighbors actually knock on the door to ask, like, when was I going to finish that thing behind the house uh, up in the tree? It's behind the house, but they just wanted to know. 
The greatest cost has been having to park outside in the driveway this winter. It's like the coldest winter in the history of West Virginia, it feels like. So I've not been able to park my car in the garage. Here's a picture of our garage. My wife is responsible for keeping her side clean, and I'm responsible for keeping my side clean. And you can see whose side is not clean. All those boards have been left because I've still ha- I still have a lot of work to do. Half-finished treehouses are funny, but half-finished lives are not funny. Half-finished construction projects can be a nuisance, but half-dedicated lives can be a disaster. And so this morning with that image of the treehouse and the image of construction, we're going to look at what the cost of following Jesus is, but we're going to see that the cost of not following Jesus or following him halfway is actually much, much greater. I'll tell a story at the end and then we'll pray. Let me invite you to take your Bibles again to Luke chapter 14. Please stand with me as I read, starting in verse 25. Luke 14, 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off, and he'll ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you have your notes, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the app. First, you'll see that going all in for Jesus will cost you something. Going all in for Jesus will cost you something. No one can ever accuse Jesus of short-selling the price of discipleship. Satan short sells all the time. Uh, Satan, if he had a website, the banner of his website would be, this is fun, this is easy, this is freeing. But if you read the the fine print at the bottom of Satan's website, you'll find that it's death, it's pain, it's disaster. But Jesus doesn't operate that way. Jesus, if he had a website at the top, would be, follow me and carry your cross. Follow me and, and deny yourself, take up your cross daily. In modern terms, we would call this being all in, jumping in with both feet, not hedging your bets, not holding back, laying it all on the line for Christ. If you love to read, let me encourage you to check out this book by Mark Batterson. It's called All In. 
Uh, I just bought it. It came in Friday. I read the whole thing yesterday morning. It's 171 pages, and it is an amazing book. Maybe in my top five books. Uh, later in the spring, I'd like our entire church to read it together. We're going to say more about that. But if you want to pick it up and get a jump start, Mark explains from the scriptures what it means to be all in. And Jesus reminds us that to be all in costs us several things. First, it costs us our relationships. It costs us our relationships. In verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Imagine as Jesus is preaching and people are standing there with their spouse. They're standing there with their children. And Jesus makes this this jarring declaration. Now, we know from the rest of scriptures that Jesus wasn't actually saying that it's okay to hate your wife, to hate your husband, or to hate your children. That's not okay. But he was using a Hebrew expression that means to love less, to love something less. If you're taking notes, you can write down Genesis chapter 29 in verses 30 and 31. In this passage, in verse 30 of Genesis 29, the scriptures tell us that Jacob loved Rachel but he loved Leah less. He loved Leah and Rachel, but he loved Leah less. In verse 31, he then says that he hated Leah. One of two things are true. Either there's contradictions in the Bible, or else our English 21st century understanding of this Hebrew phrase uh, isn't lining up, and typically that's the case. So when Jesus says to hate something, he's using that phrase, which means to love less. You can also write down Matthew 10 37. Jesus explains it and Matthew I think captures it better than any of the gospel writers. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Our love and devotion to Jesus is to be so pure, so unqualified, so unconditional that our greatest loves Our our greatest fondness in life will pale in comparison to our love for Jesus. If we lived in Iran or if we lived in Indonesia, this verse would make more sense to us out of the gate. There are Christians today that will choose to follow Jesus and it will cost them their life. If it doesn't cost them their life, it'll cost them their family. For to follow Jesus means to be disowned by the family. And so there's no question in their mind what it means to follow Christ. Hopefully we'll never have that happen uh, wholesale by large in the United States. But it could happen. But here's a better application that hits most of us today. It goes like this. We can only love our family best when we love God most. We can only love our family best when we love God the most. My wife and I, when we got married 17 years ago, uh, I don't know if she would say it quite like this. I would say it. I thought getting married, it was the other person's responsibility to meet every one of my needs. And if I wasn't happy, it was their fault. Now, I didn't say that, babe, like, right? I didn't like to say that. Uh, actually, don't comment. But I, th- I, I, I thought that. You can ask her after the service. And so, like, if I'm having a bad day and she's not making my day better, of course it is her fault. Marriage is a gift from God, and certainly we meet one another's needs. 
But if you're putting pressure on your spouse to meet every one of your needs, your highest joy, your highest longings, you will fall short because you're asking them to play the role that only God can fulfill. Jesus says you've got to love God. You, you, you love your family best when you love God the most. If God took your spouse, some of you have lost children. If God took your child, if God took my child, would I still love him the most? If God called our children to the other side of the world, would we still love him most? This verse also speaks to boundaries. Uh, some of us, some of you maybe have family members or somebody in your life that really has no boundaries and they're continually prying into your life and prying into your marriage, really making things hard with your relationship with your spouse or your relationship with your children or maybe your relationship with the Lord. And, and we could take verses 26 and 27 to speak to boundaries. It is okay for the sake of mission and for the sake of the kingdom to draw these boundaries to make sure nothing prevents us from loving the priorities that God has placed in our lives. So we may lose relationships. Number two, we may also lose our ego. God calls us to lose our ego. In verse 27, Jesus said, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We may lose, we will lose our ego. Think of how this would have impressed the disciples. They were hoping for Jesus to be their great deliverer. He was going to free them from Roman oppression. He was going to come in and save the day for Jewish people of all time. If they were writing Jesus' campaign strategy, this is probably what the disciples would have written. Imagine as they come to Jesus and say this. Jesus... The logistics subcommittee has met three times, and we respectfully submit the following suggestions as the most conducive way to establish God's kingdom on earth. Number one, make sure your press releases include something each political and religious party in Israel wants to hear. Number two, continue the healings. The people are loving it, and it's a great marketing strategy. We especially encourage you next time to try feeding 6,000 people. The 5,000 people work great, but let's go for 6,000. That was a nice touch, Jesus, speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. We probably now have the Samaritan vote in our hip pocket. Number four, Jesus, consider reassigning Matthew to a less public position. His background as a tax collector is not helping our image or yours. We recommend someone of much higher caliber someone by the name of Judas Iscariot. Number five, set up a campaign headquarters in Jerusalem. Stop roaming around the countryside. The, it irritates the press. Number six, when you're in Jerusalem, stay in the King David Hotel. When you stay at Mary and Martha's bed and breakfast, you miss the opportunity to meet the wheelers and dealers of society. And Jesus, lastly, please stop calling the Pharisees snakes and whitewashed tombs. It's really ticking them off and it isn't helping your image. But Jesus wasn't concerned with their image or his image. Jesus wasn't building a, an ego trip. Jesus was building his kingdom for the glory of his Father, and that meant dying on a cross. 
And so when he called his disciples to follow him, he is saying, I am on my way south. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to die on a cross. And if you follow me, you've got to be willing to die on a cross too. That was jarring to them. But that's exactly what happened at the end of their lives. In AD 44, King Herod ordered James the Great to be thrust through with a sword. He was the first of the apostles to be martyred, and then the bloodbath began. Luke, the gospel writer of Luke, the gospel we're going through this month, he was hung by the neck from a tree in Greece. Doubting Thomas, we've heard of Doubting Thomas, he was pierced with a pine spear. He was tortured with hot plates and, and burned in India. In AD 54, the governor of Hierapolis had Philip crucified because his wife converted to Christianity while listening to Philip preach. And Philip continued to preach while hanging on a cross. Matthew was stabbed in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was flogged in Armenia. James the Just was thrown off the roof of the temple in Jerusalem. Simon the Zealot was crucified by the governor of Syria. Judas Thaddeus was beaten to death in Mesopotamia. And Matthias, who replaced Judas, was stoned to death. I hope that's not any of our fates. If we lived in a country outside of the United States, it could very easily be our fate. And we don't know what the future has for us. But it's, it's sometimes it can be romantic to ask, would I die for my faith? Would I die for Christ? And hopefully the answer is, by God's grace, yes. We would need God's amazing grace to do that. But I find in my heart it's easier for me to say that I would die for my faith than it is for me to die to myself every day that I live. It's easy to say, yes, if someone came in and said, renounce Christ or die, certainly I wouldn't renounce Christ. But what does it look like for me on Monday morning on the way to the coffee pot to die to myself and say, Lord, help me not to live for me today, but help me to live for Jesus. This idea of the ego refers to our identity, and Jesus wanted their identity to be the cross. What is your identity? What do you want people to, to know you for? Is it your resume? Resumes are so easy to tweak and maneuver. But if we live for the identity of our resume, it's not going to carry weight when we take our last breath. Do you live for the identity of how many likes you can get on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram? How many views you get on Snap or how many people comment on your post? We all do it, right? Like you make a post and throughout the day you're like, how many? Do we live for that? Or do we live for a greater identity? Do we live for our job title or the neighborhood we live in or the house in which we live or our accomplishments? Jesus didn't sign up to follow us. We sign up to follow him. Jesus doesn't sign up to follow us. We sign up to follow him. And that means laying our egos at the cross. It'll cost us relationships. It'll cost us our egos. But there's one more thing that we can see here in this passage, and that is it'll cost us our time, our talents, and our treasure. Look with me in verses 28 through 32. It'll cost our time, our talents, and our treasure Jesus gives two examples in this passage. He says, first of all, when someone wants to build a tower, 
It's important that they count the cost. So they finish the job. When a king goes to war, the second illustration, it's important that he count the cost. And then in verse 33, Jesus says something that none of us can live up to. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Here's a key truth if you're taking notes today. Anything worth having costs something. Anything worth having costs something. Without joy, there's, without sacrifice, there's no joy. Without suffering, there's no character. Without failure, there's no success. And without pain, there is no gain. And he calls us to give our time, our talents, and our treasures. Think of the time that it takes to follow Christ. Like, I want everything to be easy and quick in life. I like microwave Christianity for my own self because it's just easy, right? I don't want to do the hard thing. But Jesus says it's going to cost you some time. It takes time for us to pray, to read our Bibles. You've taken time out of your morning today to come and, and gather in church. It takes time. It takes intentionality, which, by the way, is a great way for us to train our children. For us to be able to say, you know, on this day, every week, by God's grace, we're going to carve out this time and we're going to do the hard thing and we're going to get in the car and we're going to church. It takes time. It takes time for us to dive into a group, a small group, and be with other people. It takes time for us to serve other people. It also takes our talents. God invites us to use the gifts he's given us to impact the kingdom. I love what Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. said about this passage. If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music, sweep streets so well that the host of heaven and earth will have to pause and say here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well but it also cost our talents our time and our treasure it takes money to build a tower and it takes money to go to war one of my friends this week reminded me that Jesus preached on money more than he preached on heaven and hell combined. Every day, almost every day, five days a week, Tuesday through Saturday, because that's when it reconciles, I check my bank account. You go to the bank, bbnt.com, you check it out, see where you're at, what you want to move here, what you want to move there, just to make sure we have taken account for every penny. If I want to know what my priorities are, don't listen to what I say. Look at what I buy. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Martin Luther said a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing. This religion is worth nothing. And so he invites us to follow him with everything we have. This week I heard the story of a man by the name of Sir Moses, Moses Montefiore. He was the first Jew to hold a high office in the city of London. He was a close friend of the royal family, and he was knighted Sir Moses by Queen Victoria in 1837. It was the same year he was elected to the as the sheriff of London. 
Towards the end of his life, someone asked him about all of the money he had given. He was quite the philanthropist. And they asked him, uh, Sir Moses, what are you worth? And he gave him a figure. Well, the figure seemed disappointing to the person, the reporter, because it seemed way, way low. This reporter had an idea what Mr. Moses was worth. And so the reporter pushed back and said, certainly, Sir Moses, you're worth a lot more than the figure you gave me. And this was his response. You didn't ask me how much I own. You asked me how much I was worth. So I calculated how much I have given to charity this year. We are only worth what we are willing to share with others. It costs us something to follow Christ. Now, why would I preach on this on a Sunday morning? For four straight Sundays, I've been primarily preaching to the church Why are we so passionate about going all in for Jesus? It can be answered in one picture. I don't want you to be this guy. I don't want you to be this guy. I don't. don't, If this represented your life, what is your unfinished treehouse? Where is it in your life that you know God is inviting you to go deeper and, and to go more all in for Him, but you just... Ah, I'm just going to go halfway. Whatever it is in your life that's that, God's inviting you to finish the job. I'm going to finish my treehouse this spring. And let me invite you this spring to go all in for Christ. If we don't, it'll actually cost us more. What will it cost us? You can see in your notes it'll cost you your influence. It'll actually cost you your influence, your respect, maybe the the right kind of reputation or impact. In verse 34, Jesus reminds his followers that they're to be salt. Salt had two purposes in the ancient world. One purpose for salt uh, was to preserve before there were refrigerators. The other purpose for salt was to pull out the flavor that was already there. I love salt. I probably eat too much of it. I love salt on my waffle fries. You can't put enough salt. If you don't have ketchup, douse them with salt. I also like the chips over at Chipotle. They're not quite as good as the chips at Chili's. Chili's might be like the best chips ever. Um, But they have three different layers of bags at Chipotle, if you hadn't noticed. Somewhere along the line, they started bringing in like these huge bags, right? So I know my doctor who's in this service wouldn't be happy if I ate the big bag. All last year, I ate the medium bag. And she still didn't like my numbers, so uh, my blood work. So now, once in a while, if I, it's only a half mile from my office. If I really want chips, I'll go get the small bag. It's hardly worth the trip to Chipotle for the small bag, but it satisfies. It's like, okay, I'm going to have the small bag of chips. About two or three weeks ago, I went over for my small bag of chips. And, and I, you know, you don't test them there while you're there. That'd be weird. And so I got in the car, and you, know, you can't wait till you get back to the office. You start eating them. And I realized that that one day they had forgotten to put salt on the chips. Now, I'm sure they wouldn't have made that mistake if it was Chick-fil-A, but this is Chipotle, so, you know, they're allowed a mistake or two. And everything inside of me, you know, wanted to go back over to Chipotle and say, hey, wait a minute, I need some salt with my chips. I didn't do that. That would probably be really, really hokey, but I like salt. It adds flavor. It accentuates the flavor that's already there. Salt, at this time of the world, at this place in the world, was harvested mostly from the Dead Sea. 
as they would bring in large quantities of water and the water would evaporate, there was a gunk that was left behind. The gunk contained salt, sodium chloride, but it also contained other minerals like potassium and magnesium and this powdery substance uh, that was almost like drywall powder or chalk. And so if they didn't process that gunk and you tried to serve that gunk, it might look salty, but it tasted terrible. Like, which would you rather have, fries with no salt or fries with drywall dust, right? That's the point Jesus is making here. He he is saying it it actually does more damage for someone who, who is not salty to pretend that they're salty than it is for you not to be salty at all. Here's a truth for life. Half dedicated Christians hurt the mission more than they help it. Half dedicated Christians hurt the mission more than we help it. And Matthew 5:13 Jesus said, "You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again?" In Revelation chapter 2, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, you've left your first love. And because you've left your first love, I'm going to remove your candlestick. That was an ancient way of saying, I'm going to remove your light. I'm going to remove your influence. In Revelation chapter 3, he said he would prefer that you be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. If you've been a Christian for a long time, do you remember what God says about lukewarm followers? He says he will spew them out of his mouth. Half-dedicated Christians hurt the mission more than they help it. This past week, if you're a married man, a married woman, and you flirted with somebody else at work, you hurt the mission more than you help it. Please stop. This past week at work, if you were lazy and you worked far less and, and, and far less diligent than an unbeliever, you, you hurt the mission. If you told a dirty, off-color joke around the office, you hurt the mission. This week, if, if you got drunk, you hurt the mission. If, if you have no regard for the food that you put into your body and, and your, your gluttonous, you hurt the mission. If you're legalistic and judgmental and looking down your nose at others, you are hurting the mission. And God is inviting us to be a church that Charleston can't live without. And in 2018, in order to do that, He wants us to go all in. Whatever that means for you, go all in. And ask God to make you salty again. To give you back your first love. Are any of us going to be perfect? Not a chance. But I want to be on a growth journey with you. And may God help us never think that we fully arrived. We'll lose our influence if we don't go all in for Christ. But lastly, we could lose our soul. We could lose our soul. Let me explain. Notice verse 34 and 35. Let's let the words of Jesus speak for themselves. He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for soil nor for the manure pile, but it is thrown out. Let them hear. Now, before we go any farther, 
we remember that the gospel is free to us. It costs Jesus everything, but it's totally free to us. The gospel is the good news that the living God, who demands perfection of all humankind, sent his son Jesus into the world to live a sinless life, to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, absorbing the judgment we rightfully deserved. But Jesus, thankfully, he he rose again, he ascended back into heaven, and he gives forgiveness, righteousness, and eternal life at the moment anyone repents and believes. The gospel is free to you. Jesus already paid it with his life. But even though the gospel is free to us, it will change us. And if we are truly following Christ, Jesus says we will be known as followers of Christ. Nowhere in the scriptures does the Bible ever allow or even give an inkling of thought that we can lose our salvation. Nowhere in the Bible. But as Jesus preached to religious people, he continually challenged religious people to make sure they were in to make sure their faith was genuine and that they weren't just going through the motions. This is why he says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. If you want to know the thing that scares me the most as the senior pastor at Bible Center Church is Matthew 7, 21 and 22. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers." If you grew up in church and you call yourself a Christian because your family is a Christian, let me invite you today to choose to follow Jesus Christ on your own. Let him give you his life. If you grew up in the 1950s or the 1960s when it was culturally common for people to be Christian and you're sitting in this seat this morning thinking you're on your way to heaven but you've never truly put your life and faith in Christ, you are not a Christian. But you can be and God wants you to be today. What's the main challenge from Luke 14? I think we could sum it up like this. Go all in for Jesus, since He went all in for you. Go all in for Jesus, since He went all in for you. Going all in in life usually requires at least one step. In that movie, uh, We Bought a Zoo, Matt Damon's character summarizes it well. He says, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. As we conclude this morning, can I invite you to 20 seconds of insane courage? That you this morning, wherever God has you in life, that you would say, I am going to go all in. I'm making this decision today. For some, let me invite you to come to our Belong Membership Weekend. You know that God is inviting you to greater commitment. You want to get involved in the mission and the vision at Bible Center Church. You're just not really sure how or not sure when. Let today be the day you register. 
You can get on your app. You can get on the email. You can get on the website. You can register. It's all in the bulletin. I'm going to be leading that weekend, and I'd love to see you. If you're not yet a member of Bible Center, we want you all in, and we'd love to spend Friday evening and that Saturday morning talking about what that means in the life and context of our church. Just sign up today to go all in. For you, it may be baptism. We've got a baptism service coming up here in uh, March, and Pastor Richard and I are going to be leading and teaching a baptism class. Even if you can't make the class, we will meet with you. If you've been a believer, maybe at Christmas Eve or the last few weeks, you put up your hand at the end of a service, and you've said, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Your next step is to be baptized. And so today, in 20 seconds of insane courage, you could reach out with a message. You could see me. I'll be standing here at the front after the service. You could drop me a note on Monday and say, I want to be baptized. Tell me more. Let today be your all-in day. Hey, some of you are looking for fellowship. You're lonely. And you could dive into a group this spring There's like over 50 groups all around Bible Center, men's groups, women's groups, community groups, groups that meet on Sunday, groups that meet on Tuesday. There's all kind of groups. And let this spring be the spring that you say, you know, I'm going to try that. I'm going to go all in. If you've got some other question about going all in at Bible Center, Jane will be down front on my left after the service for BC and 5, Bible Center and 5, and she'd love to tell you what it means or how you could be all in more at our church. If we go all in today for Christ, whatever that looks like for you, it may cost us some relationships. At least will cost us the priorities of our relationships. It it will cost us our egos. I got one, you got one. It's going to cost us that. It, It will cost us our time, our talents, and our treasures but not going all in will cost us infinitely more. It'll cost us our influence. I don't want us just to be that church on the hill. I want us to be a gospel movement with other Christians in this city reaching people for Jesus, robbing hell and filling heaven. It'll also cost us our souls. If you've never gone all in for Christ and you're just going through the motions, Go all in in your faith and watch God do an amazing work both now and eternity. Go all in for Jesus since he went all in for you. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for what you're doing in our church. I'm confident you're speaking through your spirit in hundreds of ways right now. Lord, for those that need to register today for the membership weekend, I pray they would and go all in with us. For those that need to be baptized, I pray they'd reach out today and let me baptize them. Let Pastor Richard lead them in baptism. God, I pray that you would help those who need to get into a group. There's some lonely folks. Help them to go all in to some of these new groups that have just started. Whatever it is, personally, a phone call we need to make, a visit we need to make, a letter we need to write, help us go all in for Christ. With heads bowed and eyes closed as they lead us 
in this last song. Let's take the first verse or two and let's just keep heads bowed and eyes closed. And as the band sings, let's go all in for Christ.